Hey, it's Matt Weaver with Bible Truth Project, and tonight we're going to have another discussion with Willard, and tonight we're going to discuss Daniel 8. We'll see how far we get. Ultimately, if we could get through chapter 12, that would be cool, but we'll see. So thanks again, Willard, for being with us and and walking us through your understanding of Daniel, or at least open to discussion here, because, you know, I'd love to prove you wrong. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if that well, was to be with you. If that was the point, we'd quit right now. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I think the point is to inspire each other and to inspire others, right? There you go. <laughs> All right. So give us a little preface to Daniel 8 in your, as you understand it. Well, in Daniel 8, you have uh, the ram. You end up with the he-goat. This is the dream, the vision that Daniel's having. And... Uh, you have the he-goat, then you have the four horns, and you have the little horn. And uh, my understanding of that is um, basically leading up to um, Rome and the destruction of the temple and that. And uh, obviously that little horn is going to end up being the revived Roman Empire. We'll dive into it. That's what I see as I read, the, read through the chapter. So when you think of uh, Rome versus who in, in the scenario, the exchange? Uh, I'm sorry. I didn't catch. Um, in your opinion, Rome versus who? Well, it's, it's, it's Rome is a little horn that comes up and that basically destroys the sanctuary and that in AD 70, and you go into the time the Gentiles that Matthew 24 would speak about. Um, that's how I see it. That's what I understand in this. And then, of course, Rome, you had the revived Roman Empire. And the last uh, time we had a discussion, we talked about uh, the two legs in Nebuchadnezzar's image, and those two legs being the Roman Empire, Eastern and Western. And then, as you went down through those two, uh, down through you come to a section where the steel is separated with this clay and the steel does not attach to each other. And just like the steel does not attach to each other where this, this section of clay. So this Roman empire will not be consecutive and the people will be broken. It'll be scattered. And then you have at the end of the age, you have the 10, uh, the Roman Empire coming back together in the Ten Toes, and in the days of these kings, referring to the Ten Toes, God sets up a um, kingdom that shall never be destroyed. So here in this is basically a rundown of that same thing. That's what I see. Uh, where there you're talking about nations, here you're talking about uh, kingdoms and, well... Yeah, again, nations don't want to really, can't really split that up. That's how I see it. Maybe you see it different. You know, Daniel 8 was, is a little bit trickier for me to understand. I'm, I think uh, 9 and 10 through 12 uh, is easier to match up with the idea of the, the, horn, the four horns, et cetera, even though you kind of see the same picture here. Um, mm -hmm. But it does say in verse... Um, 18 that the two the two horns or uh, or the ram that you saw having two horns this, so this is the one animal 
uh, are the kings of Median Persia, and the male goat, which is the other animal, is the kingdom of Yavan, okay, or Greece. Most mm-hmm. most times it's, it's Greece, but it's in that kind of probably right in the region between Turkey and Greece, somewhere in right in that mm-hmm. region. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, here it's specifically saying are the kings of Median Persia, and the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. So the what I don't know is like Daniel eight is it speaking of um, something an, an already not yet kind of scenario or not because it kind of correlates to the whole the Greek the Greeks coming in during the time of Alexander taking over the whole media Persian Empire. However, it does seem um, like it. It, it follows the narrative of the four horn or the one single horn coming up out of the four. And you kind of see that same picture. So for instance, in 23 and in the latter time of their kingdom, let me just mm-hmm. share it real quick. There we go. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty but not by his own power, which is that whole beast antichrist kind of conundrum. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Holy people in this case, probably talking about Israel, the Jewish people, but could also be talking about believers. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule, and he shall exalt himself in his heart, and he shall destroy many in their prosperity. Notice that in their prosperity by riches, he shall even rise against the prince of princes, which we would know as Jesus. But he shall be broken without human means, which is God will break him. And the vision of the evenings and mornings were told it is true. Therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. Am I missing anything? Nope. Right on. Do you want to do you want to go back and start at the beginning of the chapter? Or you want to go from here? I can, I can. Do you want me to read the whole thing? Um, not necessarily. I think it's 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 okay. No, let, let's take it from here. So the uh, yeah, the ram or the sheep, the male sheep. I believe that's what it's talking about. The ram um, being Medo-Persia, the two horns. You have the he goat. Uh, we know that when uh, the he goat he moved was moved with color, He basically Alexander the Great first king of Greece that comes on the scene and goes out and conquers the world. Uh, first first king that goes out and conquers the world, not necessarily the first king of, Greek, of the Greek empire, but the first one when Greek became the dominant empire worldwide in the known world. Um, so you have Alexander the Great, the first, when he was broken, after he conquered, he died. Uh, it's been said that he wept Yep. When there was no no nobody else to conquer, he was yep. uh, uh, quite a warrior and had quite a horse. If you read history, uh, his horse was as much part of him as any one of his pieces of armor. But uh, as you could, uh, when he died, it was the four captains, uh, the to- four military captains that the kingdom was divided and taken over by them not by his uh, posterity or by his offspring. It wasn't a son that took took over. Um, 
And then from those four, from those four, you have, um, oh, let's break in here. We could probably, I mean, in verse eight is where it talks about this whole, the last part of the goat. You know, yeah, let's go from, let's just read from eight on. Let's do that. Let me just share it here. <clears throat> Therefore, the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was, horn was broken. And in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. And out of the one of them, or out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south towards the east, towards the glorious land, which would be Israel. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the hosts and some of the stars to the ground, and it trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away. And the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this... And prospered. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another one holy one said to the certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the true and the transgression of desolation? And giving of both of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And he said unto me, For two thousand three hundred days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Yes, yeah, so here you have um basically the 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 um the handoff to the to the four generals here hang on here the little and and out of the four generals one comes out i would say that is talking about actually the roman empire that's how that's what i would see and i would see that this is not necessarily talking about future but this is talking about uh, this Roman Empire coming out as a dominant and um, the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, do you push this all into the future? Or do you see this as that? It's tricky with prophecy. The reason, like, if you just want to go from a historical uh, hermeneutic okay if you're just looking at it from a historical basis a lot of people would say you know that you can find a lot of this really matches the story you know of the the greco the or basically the greek through the roman period you'll find mm -hmm. this history there especially the greek empire because alexander comes like like it says the goat comes in from from the east without even touching the ground it's like so fast he overcomes the known world and and just like that, his his, bro his horn is broken. At a very young age, he's, his, 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 he passes. And really, four main families or four generals take over. There is actually technically an argument for a fifth, but it's within four. I mean, that is a pretty, pretty interesting coincidence. However, when you're talking about where, 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 the, where it gets interesting to me is like verse 13, um, there it brings in the whole concept of the daily sacrifices and desolation. If you look at like what happens in the days of the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, this, the daily sacrifice was interrupted, but the Maccabees actually stood up and put an end to that rule and threw off those shackles. So in some ways it doesn't then actually quite match what it's talking about. 
Uh, it was trampled underfoot, you could say, but that actually works better under the Roman system because in the Roman system it was destroyed and there literally hasn't been um, a temple since that period. So it gets, I don't know, in some ways it's, it's kind of, you can make an argument for it being in the past, but I tend to think that a lot of prophecy probably isn't in the past. It probably is looking forward. And what we see in the past is just a pattern, just a, um, a, a vague pattern of what we will see in the last days. But I also know that that's arguable as well. I would say that like Daniel, uh, I think we covered it last time in 7, you know, the vision of the four beasts that come out of the of the chaos, like to me, it's one of the clearest messages of prophecy in general. And that is that there is a four part um, system, beast system, or whatever you want to call it, that is rising, that is four kings. And that four part system is, as I understand it, central to the whole concept of, of the biblical return of of the, the cloud rider and so so you'd have to take that into consideration because here again we see four so daniel starts in daniel 2 verses with four sections of the idol and then it says in the days of those kings um in that sense and then you have daniel 7 again four beasts come out of the sea which to me speaks of the primordial the the primeval the the pre-flood world like four strong spirits, I guess you could say, or maybe that's the wrong word, but four kings is what it says. But it's, I think it's probably historic spirits type of a thing that comes up. And then here again in Daniel 8, you're talking four. And then what you'll see later in, uh, I think it's 11, again, you're going to see four successions. Like there's a, a first king that has a son that has a son that has a son. So, and the fourth one is that everybody look, or not, I shouldn't say they all have sons, but there's four kings in focus. So, Daniel seems to focus on four kings. By the time we get to Revelation, it seems to be that those four have grown to seven. Mm -hmm. Okay, so as time goes forward, you now have seven in view, which means there has been some kingdoms in between that are part of the same system. So, gotcha. So, if you, re, you recall the the graph I had made of the view of the Old Testament prophets, yep. And you have that valley in there that is hid between the mountain peaks. So you have mountain peaks over here on this side. You have mountain peaks over in this side. And in that valley in between there, you have the Church Age, a Gentile age. And what will happen, the Old Testament prophets will run right from these mountain peaks directly to these mountain peaks. Yep. And I don't see anything different here. Um, you know, when, when Isaiah, Jesus stepped, stepped up in front of the synagogue and read out of the book of Isaiah, and he talked about coming to heal the, you know, to set the captive free and to heal the sick, the blind. And then he stops because the very next passage, the next phrase the prophet had jumped from these mountain peaks to these mountain peaks. And he says in the day of vengeance of our God, mm -hmm. the day of vengeance. And Jesus stopped at that because he did not come here for that. Right. So if we understand the Old Testament prophets, as they looked out across those peaks, they would jump from one 
Christ's first coming, the highlight, the events that are happening in the first coming directly out to the second. And sometimes they jump right back over to the first again. They go back and forth throughout the passage. And uh, you separate that by knowing that Jesus is coming the first time as a lamb. Just like Peter, when he spoke in the day of Pentecost after the lame man was healed from the porch, uh, Solomon's porch, he says the things that the prophet spoke of that Christ must suffer, he hath so fulfilled. The sufferings of Christ have been fulfilled. They are past. And what is coming in the future is a time of restitution of all things. So as you go through the Old Testament, you have to understand that and be able to see what the prophets are doing because they jump from one to the other. And and I, if you don't understand that and you want to look at a timeline that's just rigid, right? Everything's in order. Yep. Um, you know, from, from, from passage to passage or even chapter to chapter, um, you're going to, you're going to have a, yeah, you're going to have a hard time here. What I see is this little horn is then we should talk about the transfer from greek those four what was what happened and how did you go from the four generals of the greek empire over to the dominant roman empire was that not one of the generals that eventually came up to be the dominant yeah i mean it was pretty much pretty pretty much i mean it's i'm not sure exactly Basically, what you had, you had one of the four generals that that grew and became uh, morphed into into Rome, the Roman Empire. And that's what this little horn is talking about. Now, at the same time, it seems he jumps from the time that the daily sacrifices ceased and all that. And verse um, verse 10, verse 11, 12. It says, and an host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression. So Mosiah came. They rejected Mosiah. It was because of their rejection of Mosiah that Jesus said that there's a time coming that not one stone is going to be left upon another in the temple. That's Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21 talks about that. So it says, and host was given him this little horn. And we know that Titus, uh, he came up against Jerusalem, besie uh, siege, laid siege against Jerusalem, uh, the daily sacrifice because of reason of transgression. It was taken away and it cast down the truth to the ground and it practiced and prospered. And even this uh, casting down truth to the ground, um, even the rejection of Mosiah, and the crucifixion of Messiah, even though the Jews are the ones that rejected the Messiah, Jesus, it was the Romans who were instrumental in the crucifixion of him. So you re realize, you back up just a little bit and say, this was the devil wanting to destroy Jesus. Uh, you back to Revelation 12, you have the woman that brings forth a man child and you see the devil is there waiting to destroy him. He's going to destroy them through the unbelievers of the Jewish people. He's going to destroy him through Rome. He's going to destroy him by any means he can. He can, But in all that, he runs right from that section. And you go down to verse, uh, here you start the trans, you, you start the interpretation at 20. 
But in verse 23, it says, in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to a full, a king of fierce countenance, meaning that this little horn that we see in Rome, in the Roman Empire, that thing is going to come back at the end of the, the Gentile age. After you get through that valley, it's going to come back in vengeance. And you have the beast and you have all, everything in Revelation filling in, coming into um, into power. And you have the, the dragon, Satan himself, cast down from heaven. And you have the whole, um, the false trinity working together, wanting to destroy God himself. So I don't know. You, you follow what I'm saying there? Where, where I see this thing, I see this thing speaking about both jumping right across that valley of yeah, the gentile I, age the church I, age mm -hmm. i think from the near side of things so for instance this is i'll, I'll share this so you can see it but the uh let me see if i can get it to work here so for instance and, and we went through this briefly but this is just something that uh, i had assembled as i was studying daniel but one of the key verses i think that that to me cements the location where this stuff happened so we can look to the past and find similarities but i would hesitate to say that it was fulfilled in the past because of 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 the fact that like for right for instance here in verse 19 and said behold i am going to inform you about what will happen later in the time of wrath for the vision pertains yes. to the appointed time of the end it's mm -hmm. not referring yep. to uh it's not referring to what happened necessarily in those days and, and I come back to the fact that um, Jesus himself then uses Daniel specifically. He doesn't say, look to what the prophet Jeremiah says, or look what the prophet Isaiah says, or look what the prophet Ezekiel says. He says, look to Daniel when, it, when he's referring to the sign, which is the abomination, which we'll get into later. But that's, that's why I look at this somewhat from a you know, historical perspective perspective but this is just kind of the rundown geographically what we're talking about so the first ram the two-horned ram is is from that area and he's going out and then there's the male goat with the conspicuous horn between his eyes who comes in without hitting the ground okay so there's a provocation and then you see a furious attack which breaks the horn mm -hmm. and then um and then basically the male goat becomes exceedingly strong. So this is the potential Alexandrian picture. After that, a single horn is broken, and right after his, right after she achieves greatness, verse eight, and then for the four take over for the one, if you will. And then out of the one, uh, there's a small one who kind of takes over a pretty big region. To me, when I look at that, he's he's it's kind of setting the stage then for what's coming later in Daniel. Um, so I look at this as kind of like war number one in the series of wars, mm -hmm. but maybe not. Yes. Now, okay, so back up there. I see, I, I follow your thought there now because um, I see those four in verse nine and out of one of them came forth a little horn. What I see is out of these four, a little horn arises and basically replaces those. And I see that as a Roman Empire. There. His, the historic Roman Empire or the Roman Empire that is coming? Both. 
Okay. I would say both. I'd say the historic, and I see the Roman Empire coming as a revival of that. Okay. So, so um, if we go down through, okay, verse 13, then I said, uh, then I heard one saint speaking, another saint said unto that certain saint which spake, how long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolations to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? Um, and he said unto me, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Um, I think at that point already, we jumped into the future. So you have initially, you have the, the little horn arising and diminishing, uh, disappearing during that time of the Gentile age. And you had that same little horn coming back up and becoming uh there the king well let's go into let, let's go into verse 20. uh 2021 we discussed that already um 22 then uh 23 in the latter time of their kingdom when the transgressors are come to a full a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark saying ascendances shall stand up so now when i look at this yeah in verse 23 pull that up now right toward here. the end of their of their reign, when the measure of transgressions is completed, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, will rise. I believe this is actually uh, moving forward the whole way into the beast uh, in the tri tribulation period. Um, and I say that because if this is if this is talking about kingdom, about kingdoms. I believe this is actually referring to these four kings are from Greece. Greece was a birthplace of democracy. So you have the de democratic rule that was established, started out, birthed out in Greece. Um, it came into Roman government. And since the time of Rome, democracy has been growing and has been uh, it's been growing and it's been basically the model of the powerful world empires ever since. Um, there's some, you could have a lot of discussion. There's times when democracy was not very strong. Uh, you have the Masonic, the Masons, which morphed into the Masonic Lodge that were studying government, studying government structure, and they actually had a lot of influence in even this nation and the establishment of democratic government. So you have the democratic government from the time of, 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 Greece, of Greece, of actually before Alexander the Great, and you had that coming up and being refined by Rome. And as you go through the centuries since Rome, um, it being refined in thought as well as somewhat in practice. There's a time of, of the dark ages where um, it was re being refined only by thought. And when the, the founding fathers in this country took that thought and they put it into what we see in this nation uh, probably one of the strongest forms of democratic government that you've ever seen. But here's the thing. I believe that the Antichrist is going to be a democratic form of government. 
and it's actually going to be based on at least at least start out that way yeah at least yeah exactly start out that way but here's the thing the deception of the end times here's my burden when i see the way christians uh they are so their thought and their attachment and their allegiance is so much in line with human government rather with than with the kingdom of heaven that concerns me and it scares me to be honest um this here thought here recently someone online had showed shared a picture uh, and they had trump on a billboard and it said unto yeah. us the son of yeah, I, saw it, uh, unto us the morning. I was horrified i was horrified <laughs> that was right there yeah. That is Antichrist decor to take. And here's the thing. It's going to be very deceptive. It's going to be, there's going to be many who are deceived and this guy's going to come on the scene and he's going to be so persuasive and he's going to look so good. They're going to look at him. And when he claims to be the Messiah, when he claims to be the Christ, people are going to accept him as that. And you're going to have a tremendous amount of professing Christians who are going to embrace him. And the deception and the miracles and the things that are going to be uh, uh, done at that time, um, it's no wonder that that the deception is so strong that God is going to actually have angels flying through heaven preaching the gospel. And you're going to have the 144,000 and you're going to have the two witnesses, which are focused mostly on Israel, but I don't think only on Israel, but on God's people, Jew and Gentile. Uh, that that they're calling to repentance and telling not to uh, take the mark of the beast. But I'm saying all that. I'm jumping way ahead here. I'm saying all that because we come back here to uh, to verse 23 in the latter time of their kingdom. So this is talking about the de- democratic rule in the latter time of the democratic rule. In other words, that's how I would see it uh, in their kingdom when the dem- when the transgressors are come to a full. Uh, you're talking about the end of the Gentile age, the time of the Gentiles coming to an end, the fullness of the Gentiles coming to uh, to an end. A king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. And that's where I see the jump across the valley right there from Rome destroying Jerusalem the whole way into the revived Roman Empire, the Ten Kings. Yeah, and I would, I'm going to share this. This is the graphic I'm getting ready for. Uh, an event that I'm speaking at, and only I'm only touching on on this, but this is how I would understand, like Daniel seven, for instance, and then this is again the same pattern we're going to see reoccurring in uh, eleven um, in Revelation. It's the same mm-hmm. kind of setup. What Daniel sees in seven is this, these four kings. Now, it, interestingly enough, I think it's probably wrong to try to attribute specific kingdoms to this, even though you can guess. The Bible actually doesn't say so. You know, whatever it is. Okay, King One is likened as a lion, eagle. King Two is a bear. King Three is a four-headed leopard with wings. But King Four is what gets Daniel's attention. So, mm-hmm. out of the four that arise, whether they're sequential or at the same time, I personally think they're at the same time. He then focuses on King Four, and it's King Four that we see then ten kings coming out. And one raises up and conquers three others. So, again, you see that same pattern that we're seeing in Daniel 8 kind of take place to where we're focusing, okay, initially there's a sequence where two kings are fighting. It could be, who knows, it could be King 3 was fighting King 4, 
but ultimately King Four then overcomes through. However that is, King Fork becomes ten kings, and then one raises up out of that and conquers three of those ten to form what will become the final uh, Antichrist kingdom. So just for people's clarity, when we're talking about four kings, it kind of goes two two directions. There's the four kings that Daniel initially sees rise up, which I think correlate to the seven that, um, that John later sees. Okay, But ultimately... Out of the four, you then see ten, or out of the one, I should say, you see ten kings out of the one, and from the ten, one rises up out of the ten and conquers three others. That's how I would understand it. Yeah, and so that one that rises up, I would see as Antichrist himself. Yeah. If, I think yeah. he's coming up from one of the ten, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. Would agree with that. And it would show that that one actually conquers several and it ends up with only seven instead of ten yeah yeah okay we're on the same page there yeah so um okay so verse 24 so we we, i looked about the trend um that the king of fierce countenance in verse 23 and of his power shall and his power shall be mighty but not by his own power, and he shall destroy wonderfully and shall prosper in practice and shall destroy the mighty and holy people. I believe that's talking about uh, going after the Jewish people as well as the five foolish virgins that are left behind. Now, that's not very popular what I just said. (laughs) People want to believe that uh, if you say a prayer and you receive Jesus uh, into your life, uh, you have a passport into heaven at the rapture, and you do not. Uh, you do not. And uh, there's going to be those in the Laodicean church who will be spit out, who will go through the fire and will buy gold tried in the fire. Uh, the five foolish virgins, Jesus told them to go and buy, go to those that sell and buy oil. And uh, as they were doing that, they realized the door is closed and there's no way they're going to get in. But uh, keep moving on here. Uh, verse 25 and through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand speaking about the deception that's coming the whole world wondering after this beast and he shall magnify himself in his heart and by peace shall destroy many uh he's going to make the peace and we need to jump into you know we said romans 8 and 10 but we need a we can't jump over nine i'd like to go in the 70th week of daniel just a little bit if you have some time sure um so he's going to um, by peace shall destroy many. He's going to make peace with Israel, and uh, in the middle of that week, it's going to that peace accord is going to be broken. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes. So he's going to stand. Not only did he actually stand up, the Roman Empire actually was instrumental in this prince of princes is Jesus, I believe. Not only was he here when he destroyed, uh, when he when he was crucified, and instrumental on that, but he's also going to be here in verse twenty four uh, when when Mosiah returns, when Jesus returns, and he's going to stand up against uh, Jesus. The ten kings are going to uh, fight against the Lamb. In verse in chapter 20 of revelation we see and they do not prosper but um actually that's the end of chapter 17 the 10 kings they uh it says that uh they fight against 
against the lamb and they're destroyed. That's Revelation 17, the end of Revelation 17. But here it says, and he shall be broken without hand. Um, so at the time when the whole world is gathered together and Jesus comes out of heaven, Zechariah says, here's a plague that is going to come against those that are gathered to fight against Jesus. It says their, their bodies are going to melt. Their flesh is going to melt off their bones. Their eyes are going to melt out of their eye socket. Their mouth, their tongues are going to melt out of their mouth. That's Zechariah. That they're going to be destroyed without hands. They're, God's Jesus is coming back, fighting with the sword of his mouth when he smites the nations. Yep. This king, this antichrist, this beast, this one horn, I believe that's all the same. Now, there again, we could have a discussion on that. I believe that's talking all speaking about the same same thing that it is not through a sword but it is actually without hand it is through the spoken word of jesus christ that he is destroyed yeah i think the bible also alludes to the brightness of his coming so yes. literally literally the power or energy coming from him the lightning the light you could say emanating from him is literally melting mountains so every yep. every valley will be brought or every mountain will be brought low every valley will be lifted that's t referring to literally melting rock by by the intensity of the energy including when people see him they're literally dissolve off their you know they're dissolving as i understand it it's 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 equivalency to a nuclear explosion but it's literally just because of the energy and the the brightness of jesus coming in full glory mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's how I would understand it. Yep. And doesn't when in Corinthians there is a Corinthians where he says there's a heavenly body at first Corinthians 1540, yeah. there's heavenly bodies and there's bodies that are celestial and there's bodies yeah. that are terrestrial and the glory of the heavenly right. body cannot be, uh, that the earthly body, the terrestrial body cannot take the glory of the heavenly. When right. Jesus comes with his heavenly glory, it's actually, it's not only his words, but it's his presence is going to melt, melt them. Yeah. Yep. yep. I mean, here's the thing. Moses seen just a glimpse of, of, of God and his face shown that people couldn't look at it. Yep. Can you imagine if he would have seen much more than that? He would have been a puddle up there in Mount Sinai. Well, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> well, I think that's what you, that's what you kind of see. In prayer we end up, maybe you know, but sometimes in prayer we see God's glory and we get into his presence and we turn into a puddle of almost. <laughs> well, here's the interesting thing. So if you go to like Sodom and Gomorrah, when they were destroyed, the Bible says that they were, they became the, the, the cities, uh, you know, it talks about a pillar of salt. Okay. Everybody thinks probably like a column of salt. But the word pillar actually means memorial. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, what does that mean? A small pile of salt. Well, if you go to the Jordan Valley today and through some of the ruins that are, uh, I mean, I shouldn't say ruins, but the areas where they find the sulfur balls and the rain pattern, that probably is the region areas of the cities, um, you find little salt deposits. And what, what they think happened what they found is like Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they found the same thing. They found little piles of salt, just little bits. And what it was is people were evaporated by the explosion and literally dissolved into little piles of salt because that's all that was left. Mm -hmm. So when, when Lot's wife turned into a pillar of salt, it wasn't a statue of salt. Mm -hmm. She literally evaporated and just became a little deposit of salt in the ground. 
That's what so, I think happened. So here, when when man split the atom and creates a nuclear explosion, and and this is where I'd like to talk to uh, to a scientist. I see it when God, when man takes the atom and releases the energy that's with penned up within that atom. Can you imagine what splitting of an atom does, the, the, the release of energy, which is God himself? I believe it's God himself. Because God is in the creation. God is in every atom. God is here. Romans would tell us that. He's not far from us. He's right here. Yeah. Um, well, I believe he powers everything, as I understand it. Yeah. And then when they're going through the, the collider... The, the yeah. trying to break down atoms and trying to discover the, the God particle. That whole thing fascinates me just tremendous. And I, I have a friend, uh, Eugene Ulrich, that knows way more about it than me. And I have had some tremendously uh, interesting discussions with him about this whole thing and, and how they're searching for the God particle. Anyway, I look at that whole thing. When the elements melt with fervent heat, when the earth passes away with the great noise and elements melt with fervent heat. Now I'm jumping the whole way out to when the heaven and earth pass away after the great white throne judgment. This is after the, the millennial kingdom, after the great white throne judgment, the heaven and earth pass away and there's a new heaven and new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Um, what you're going to hap have happen when Jesus returns is just a small fragment, a small fraction, local, on the armies of the Antichrist take place, that same thing is going to happen on a huge scale uh, on the whole of creation when the heavens pass away, the great noise and the elements melt with fervent heat. That's how I see it. You follow what I'm saying there? Sure. Yeah. Yep. So back to, back to Revelation 8. Um, at the end here, uh, verse 26, and the vision of the evening and the morning which was told is true wherefore he says shut thou up the vision for it shall be for many days and daniel fainted um and was sick certain days afterwards i rose up and did the king's business and i was astonished at the vision but none understood it so he's told to shut up the vision and the old testament prophets they were told that the things they were shown was not for them but it was actually shown for us today and i believe that's peter it says the things that were shown to them were not shown for them to understand is actually shown for us today and that's where today we look back at history and we can see what has been fulfilled and we see that spread that jump from the across that valley that mystery that is was kept hid from the from the prophets the gentile age so i don't know do you have anything else to say on this here daniel 9 uh the 2300 days uh what is your take on that maybe we should discuss that a little bit i i understand that to be um doing the tribulation um not past I mean, I would, I think it has to do with the 1200 or the, the 2300 is in the same ballpark as the 1920. 
and then you know that it's going to take some time to get things in order and set up and turned around and whatever. So to me, from you know, there's the whole argument of midpoint, you know, first part, whatever. But let's just say, for instance, from the midpoint, if we fast forward 2,300 days, or however it says it, 2,300 days, evenings and mornings, uh, to me would somewhat fall into line with, okay, Jesus comes back maybe at 1920 from the midpoint, or however, is it 1920 or 1960? Mm, 1,290. 1,290. 1,290, yeah. 1290. So there's take some time to get things turned around and and for Jesus to build the city that Ezekiel sees, right? So by the time it's all turned around, 2300 evenings and mornings have taken place and the sanctuary is restored, right? You could make an argument that that's referring to the, the real start of the millennium from the point that the temple was desecrated. Does that make sense? So from from the time that the the, the sacrifice is desecrated, you could count twenty three hundred days until the time that the sacrifice is restored. Um, so that's about that's about six years and six a little four over months. six years. Yeah. So you have three years that the antichrist and then the ultimate comes to an end, and then about three years for the Lord to get the thing built, which is pretty quick, but. You know, I'll have lots of people to help, including angels. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Amen. So uh, do you have anything else uh, on chapter eight? Not necessarily. I mean, this to me, it does have a similar it, it to me. It has a similar kind of feel, similar concept, little different angle than what we see in chapter seven. And as we go forward, we'll see kind of the same theme pop up in 11. But as a whole, you kind of, again, just get that whole four king feel that we saw in two, seven. Now here in eight, you kind of get the same thing. And then ultimately 11. But nine is where we get into the prince, which is kind of interesting. So, no, that's it for eight. So let's we okay, can touch so base. One thing, I, yeah, one thing I said there about the democratic rule, um, and, and I believe it will be democratic. See, we're not necessarily a democratic republic. Uh, we are a republic. United States is a republic, yep. and it's not a true democracy. And I believe that you're going to have Antichrist is going to establish a democracy, a democratic government that uh, does not is not based on truth, but based on a lie and based on what man wants. Just to clarify. Mm -hmm. So, should we jump into uh, chapter nine? Let's do it. So the biggest part of chapter nine, um, let me just see here. Let me scroll down. I think it kind of starts. Daniel's going through a whole prayer. He's going through a lament, etc., and then he comes down to the bottom because he's, you know, he's do not delay for your own uh, sake, my God, for your city, your people are called by your name. You know, he's giving these supplications, and then it says in verse twenty. Let me just share it here. Sorry. This is where it kind of begins. Um, now, while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication for the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, who, I'm, who I had seen in the vision at the beginning, be, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. 
And he informed me and talked to me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city, to finish transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal it vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. I'm going to stop there for a moment. Personal opinion, I, I, I personally would see that as, as Jesus coming, doing his ministry, uh, 70 weeks. Okay, so I know people kind of assume maybe three and a half year ministry of Jesus. However, nobody knows exactly, and the best evidence I've seen actually does match the whole 70 week paradigm. That Jesus' ministry was 70 weeks because Isaiah does prophesy the acceptable year of the Lord. So there's this year where Jesus would come. Three and a half years tradition came centuries later by a um, Catholic bishop. It could be that Jesus' ministry was three and a half years, but it seems to, to me, I would look at this, and you might find it different, I would look at the 70 weeks as speaking about that. Okay. Right. Now, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, which would have been in Nehemiah's day, until Messiah the Prince, okay, because that's the context here of the section just before, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, which is what, 490 some odd years or something. The street shall be built again on the wall, even in troublesome times. And after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself, and for the people of the prince who is to come, or and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city sanctuary. I would understand that is referring to the Romans, okay? The the people of the prince who is to come. Some people want to, who are the Islamic Antichrist crowd wants to say, well, the people were actually uh, basically Arabs, if you will, the people who actually destroyed the temple because the Romans didn't want to destroy it. So that's where two schools of thought kind of fight over that concept. Do you focus on the people? Do you focus on the prince? Titus was the prince ahead of the Roman armies, but the armies consisted a lot of Syrian uh, forces, I understand it, or, or you could make the argument Arabs. So they, they try to take that and say, well, that's referring to the people. See, the people of the prince who's to come, uh, that, that's where the, the Islamic theory comes in. You can also understand it in, in light of the... Um, what do you call it? The Roman, revived Roman Empire theory. Or you can just understand it that the coming king, okay, or the coming prince, see Titus at that time was not the emperor. So he he would become the emperor, but at that time he was he was not yet a prince. So there's also that side of it. So <laughs> there's your three takes of that verse, as I as I has have heard it at least. So the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end of it shall be with the flood, until the end of war desolations are determined. So to me, I understand that as the 70 AD issue. Um, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Okay, but in the middle of the week, this is where you could then make the argument that this is speaking about the end now. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate, mm -hmm. which seems to be Antichrist language. Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, 
if I'm going to back up there to verse 24, 24. So here's, here's my, my perspective, my understanding of this. Daniel, um, at the beginning of this ver uh, chapter, Daniel in verse two, it says in the first year of his reign, speaking about uh, Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, um, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So we start the chapter out with, with uh, Daniel wanting to know, God, what do you have in store for your people, yep. for my people? What do you have in store for my people? And as Daniel is reading the book of Jeremiah, he realizes, hey, Jeremiah says they're going to be captive. Uh, they're going to be uh, carried away captive in Babylon for 70 years. He starts adding stuff up from the time they're carried away to till current. He says, we are almost at the end. We are going to back, go back to Jerusalem. The 70 years is almost complete. So now as he is, as he understands this, all of a sudden, his whole thing comes up. This whole thing is like, God, what do you have in store? Are we going to go back to our country? Are we going to be established? Are you going to uh, set again Israel as a nation? Will we today be the head, not the tail of the nations? There, See, he had all of the book of Jeremiah ready. He had a bunch of the prophetic, the prophets were already speaking. And he was he was reading this stuff and he was saying, when what when is this all coming together so the interesting thing is and here i love to bring this out as daniel was trying to understand the message of the prophets and god's timeline people like to kind of pour you know they like to rain on the on someone's parade when they're all in the bible prophecy seems like it's a favorite pastime of some people <laughs> well that's not how god looks at it when 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 Daniel was searching out and wanting to understand, what did the angel say here? When he came, he said, thou man greatly beloved of God. And uh, I, that is verse 23. At the beginning of the supplication, the commandment came forth and I am come to show thee for thou art greatly beloved. Therefore understand the matter and consider the vision. So you have this messenger that comes to him and he says, you are greatly beloved of God. When, when God's people, when God's people are engaged in saying, God, what do you have? What do you, what is your plan? I want to understand. I want to know you. And when man's heart begins to beat with God's heart, you know what that means to God? That means a lot. Actually, it's like God takes a, uh, God recognizes that. So I just want to say this. There can be a whole lot of different thoughts about the prophetic word, but God is excited about those that want to understand. 100%. Yep. So Jesus, Jesus, now, like, Jesus, like prophecy too. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so you have, you have this, um, angel comes to Daniel and he says, I'm going to answer your question. You're saying, God, what do you have planned? I'm going to answer your question. He says, 70 weeks are determined. And these 70 weeks, within the 70 weeks, 
It's determined on the people of Israel onto the holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity. So that was all done in Jesus Christ. He brought an end to transgression. He brought an end of sins and he made reconciliation for iniquity. That was all done by Mosiah and to bring an everlasting covenant, uh, everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. So he is dealing strictly with the Jewish people here. He is not dealing with the Gentile age. He says, God is going to be working specifically with the Jewish people, with your people, with thy people, and with thy city, the holy city, Jerusalem. And this 70 weeks is going to be the complete. And at that 70 week, at the end of the second 70 weeks, there's going to be everlasting righteousness brought in. And it's going to complete the vision and prophecy and anoint the most holy. Okay, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem. So he says, this is the beginning of the 70 weeks. So now I want to explain something. 70 weeks is 70 weeks of years. You have seven days in each week and a year for each day. And if you take that 70 weeks times seven, you have 490 years. So he says in 490 years, everything is going to be wrapped up and complete. And we could dive into that. You might be able to explain that better than me. Um, but that 490 years, let's keep reading here. Know therefore that from the going forth the commandment, from the time the commandment goes out to restore and build Jerusalem, and you already said that in the time of Nehemiah. Now there is some thoughts about which commandment was this? Because there was actually three, several different ones. Right. But from the time of Nehemiah, I believe when the commandment went out, from the time that commandment went out until the day that Jesus was crucified, from what I understand was exactly 483 years. It was 69 weeks. Yeah, it's so as I understand it, and there's a couple different ways to look at it, but like in Ezra 7, Verses seven, it talks about the, the leaving or getting the command the first day of the first month in the seventh year. So, of course, it's a little tricky because you have to find the years which were kept a little bit different back in those days, but it equals about 483 years. You fast forward, you land close to either the crucifixion or the triumphal entry or right in that time where it's kind of the pinnacle of the Messiah's, uh, uh, um, just kind of the pinnacle there, one way or the other. It's very close. Okay, let's go back. Can you pull verse 25 back up? Know therefore and understand it from the going for the commandment. So we covered that to restore and build Jerusalem onto the Messiah, the prince. Verse 25. So we have um, on to restore and build Jerusalem, that commandment that went forth until Messiah, the prince. That is speaking about Jesus. From the time that commandment goes forth until Jesus... There is seven, a seven-week period, which is seven times seven is 49. And there is a 62-week period, which is 62 times seven days in each week is 434. That's a total of 69 weeks or 483 years. The, the street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times, now we're jumping past the whole way forward, 
into the, the, the time since 1948 that Jerusalem has been rebuilt. And I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No, this year is, this year's, this is, this, this is talking about uh, uh, the rebuilding of Jerusalem when uh, Nehemiah, when the, when the, those that were in uh, Babylon went back. Right. So it's in, even in trouble sometimes. And after the 62 weeks, so you have that seven week period of rebuilding. You have another 434 years, a total of 483. Mosiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. He is not cut off for himself. He is cut off for the sins of the people. Jesus was crucified. That cut off is speaking about the crucifixion of Christ. Yep. And he's cut off for what we talked about earlier to make an end of sin to make a reconciliation for iniquity. So you have that happening when Mosiah is cut off. And it says, and the people of the prince, see now when you look at upper, uh, up top there, you have prince as capital, Mosiah the prince. Here you have lowercase prince, but this, the people of the prince who is to come, that prince is the same one that in verse 27 it says then he shall confirm that is talking about that confirm that prince so the people of the prince of roman empire the prince is speaking about antichrist so the people the prince was not there yet the people the roman empire shall destroy the city and the sanctuary that happened in ad 70 that was a result of the transgression of the people. That was a result of the, the destruction of Jerusalem, them rejecting their Messiah. He's going to destroy the sanctuary, and the end of it will be with a flood or a siege. The whole city came to an end when, just like a flood goes out and covers everything, the same way a siege came up around Jerusalem. I believe that's what it's referring to. Uh, the siege against Jerusalem where nothing was uh, left into the city, out of the city, and you... Very suddenly, uh, just extremely, just that quick. Yep, and you actually had uh, people eating human flesh, eating each yep. other, had cannibalism. Yep. So that there is... Um, that's speaking about um, the destruction of Jerusalem. And then uh, with the flood... and. Onto the end of the war, desolations are determined. Or um, speaking about that's in verse 26. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Basically, you have the siege, you have all of Jerusalem desolate, destroyed, and basically Jerusalem became in, uninhabited, almost completely uninhabited. And Jerusalem was abandoned. Um, now we go into verse 27, then he shall confirm, this is the prince, the people, of the prince destroyed it. Now this prince is here. Then he, the prince shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. So up to this point, you had 69 weeks of the 70 weeks within the 70 weeks at the end of the 70 weeks, everlasting righteousness is going to be established to bring in everlasting righteousness. He said, so you have 69 weeks up to the time that Jesus died. Now you have the 70th week of Daniel. Here's a picture. When people talk about the 70th week of Daniel, this is what he's talking about. 69 weeks are fulfilled. We have one more week. And that's 
another seven years in the tribulation period. So in that 70 years, I mean, in that 70th week, that, that last seven years, it says, he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. Antichrist is going to make a peace covenant, a peace accord with Israel. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abomination, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation. And that determined shall be poured out upon the desolate. Meaning, this is talking about the final one week. In the middle of that week, there's going to be a covenant is going to be broken. The Jewish people are going to realize this man who rebuilt the temple, he's sitting in the temple of God, claiming himself to be God. Halfway through the week, they're going to recognize this guy's a sham. And they're going to break the covenant. And that's where the first half of the tribulation period, up to the middle of the week, you kind of have a Antichrist coming in and taking over the whole world, wandering after the beast. You have a covenant with Israel. You have all that happening. In the middle of the week, the covenant is broken. When the covenant with Israel is broken, Antichrist turns around and goes after Israel. And that's where you have the whole crisis. And you have Jesus coming out of heaven in the wine press of the wrath of God. Um, right there when Jesus comes out of heaven, Zechariah tells us that the reason he comes out of heaven is because all of Israel comes to a crisis and they repent and they call on him whom they have pierced yep. and they mourn for him as one mourns for his firstborn. And when they do that and the families, every family apart, the husband and wife apart, when that mourning happens is when he comes out of heaven. So that last three and a half years is um, the last half, I say the, la the, the last week, the final week is the tribulation period, 70th week of Daniel, three and a half years, the first half being more peaceful, the Antichrist really coming up into power, the last three and a half, you have the judgments being poured out and you have it culminating with jesus christ coming back out of heaven and destroying him yeah i like that and the other thing i like to add is that you know we use tribulation but i prefer personally jeremiah's uh line time of jacob's trouble because mm -hmm. it centers what's going on i think so many people just hear tribulation and they think you know christian centered you know western world tribulation no, what, what this is, is the time of Jacob's trouble. This is a final pressure that's mm -hmm. going to be poured out against God's purposes, plan, and covenant people on earth, centering around Jacob, okay, Israel. And, 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 mm -hmm. and, and so I think like that aligns, or that, that's like a GPS to us to understand the epicenter of what will take place regardless of the exact sequence of things we know that it's according to the prophets this is not centering on the christian church if you will this is centering on uh jacob's children israel mm -hmm. so just for what it's worth that's how i would understand it as well and i'm gonna quick make a sketch here i'd like to show on the camera for people to see and it, this is something that we need to understand um So you have, you have, uh, 
here, if you can see that. You see that? Yep. So here on this side, you had the cross. When Jesus died, you have the kingdom. You have Pentecost took place right after Jesus, a uh, few, uh, few days, you know, within a month and a half after, after Jesus' death, resurrection. And then you have uh, AD 70, where Hebrews is written AD 68. And you have uh, the writer of Hebrews saying, hey, these things are coming to an end. There's no more justification through the old temple system, through the old temple worship, and establishing that Jesus is the mediator. He is the high priest, and he has replaced the high priest working the temple. So you have here, um, in the middle of this, before you get to AD 70, you have... Uh, the Macedonian call, uh, Peter sees a sheet coming down. There's a call to go to the Gentiles. You have uh, you have Paul, the apostle, going to the Gentiles. So you have a shift here. By the time you get to AD 70, the New Testament church is almost purely going to the Gentiles. The message is going out to the Gentiles. The New Testament church has become the Gentile church. You go through the church age, and here... In the seven year, it started, it starts out, I believe the rapture is in here somewhere, but it starts out with 144,000 Jews being, uh, having marks on their head, having, being marked, and they are protected and they minister. In the middle of this, in Revelation, we see that those 144,000 are in heaven before the throne of God, and we're told they are the first fruits. They're Israelites. The first fruits of Israel. See, Romans tells us that all Israel is going to be saved. This time of Jacob's trouble, God is removing the rebels. He's removing the sinners. And he's taking it. The time of Jacob's trouble, Jerusalem is going to be burdensome stone. Um, you have, you have uh, that time referred to where God is working particularly, particularly with the Jewish people. But you have a transition, just like you had here, transition from Jew to Gentile. AD 70, the temple was destroyed and the gospel went purely to the Gentiles. So you kind of had a kind of had a transition here. Here you have a transition the opposite way. This culminates at the last, at the end of the tribulation period, when the seventh trumpet sounds and the announcement is made, the kingdoms of our world of this earth have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. The seventh trumpet is the initiation of the thousand-year reign, the millennial kingdom. We are told just before, in the hour that the seventh angel began to sound, right there, an angel comes down from heaven, and he stands on land and on sea, and he raises his hand to heaven, and he swears that time shall be no longer, that that which was spoken of by the prophets shall come to an end. What was spoken of by the prophets? The Gentile age, the mystery. That's what was spoken. That mystery comes to an end. So you have the same way you have a transition here. You have a transition here. And the Gentile age actually closes at the end of the tribulation period right here. So you have a transition from the 144,000 being saved to all Israel being saved. And you have a closeout of the Gentile age. Does that make sense? Sure.
Mm-hmm. So, so, and I don't, I, I just, yeah, I just thought I'd explain that. So, um, yeah, goes with what we were saying, what we were saying there before about this is a time of Jacob's trouble. God is working specifically with, with, the, with Israel as a nation to bring them back, to refine them at the same time. He's bringing the Gentile age to a close. And Matthew 24 says, when the fullness of Gentiles has come in, that's actually when God turns back and begins to work with Israel. However, here's the thing to understand. Jesus broke down the middle wall of partition, and we are all one in Christ, both Jew and Gentile. So you get into the thousand year reign. I don't believe there's a distinct difference between the church and Israel necessarily, but we're all one in Christ. Um, Now, that could be in discussion. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? No, I mean, I understand it. I would probably phrase it a a smidge different just because of the interactions I've had in the, in the Jewish world. The way I would understand it is like the word ecclesia or ecclesia is assembly. So we, unfortunately, because of the King James, we've, we got church handed to us um, in, in the um, English lexicon. Okay. So we attribute ecclesia uh, to church, which, okay, is, you think, institution, right? Which, that's not what ecclesia or ecclesia means. It means assembly. So I agree with you in the context of this is the time for a Messiah's assembly, okay? So this is a assembly of Jew and Gentile together, right? And I know we agree on this. It's just a little nuance because what happens what happens in, in some of the world I've been to is this idea of church replacing Israel, um, which, which basically is because we think institution, right? We think institutional, we think the church or the, the systematic institutional thing that has been created in the name of Christ. Okay. Has replaced the temp has replaced the temple order. I like to say, and it's the same word, okay? So it's just a little semantic debate or an argument, not against you, but just for the listener's sake, that Messianic assembly is is a better way of saying it. So we are in this age for Messiah's assembly to take, or for the gathering, or for the harvest, if you will. Yep, yep. So we're in, we're in a harvest age where Jew and Gentile both are being gathered in. Yep. Until that number comes to an end, God isn't going to fulfill what he spoke about specifically about Israel. So the mystery is is how big this harvest really is. Okay, that to me, that's how I would understand the mystery. So it's not that the mystery is the institution of the church, and I I know you agree with me on that. Yep, hundred <laughs> percent. It's it's not the institution of the church, but it's the mystery of Messiah and him gathering a people for him for his name. Mm-hmm. the mystery out of the gentiles yeah yeah Correct. so and, and and along with that you know acts 738 refers to the gathering in the wilderness in king james as the church in the wilderness mm-hmm. at mount Sinai. so yeah 100 percent. yeah because it's because <laughs> it's because it's assembly yep and yep and assembly and i have no problem with church as long as people understand what that means it does not mean the dreadful systems we've come up with. <laughs> I love that. The dreadful systems <laughs> actually, which come from the Babel spirit, which was brought in the Roman empire and it 100%. did not get cleaned out by the, uh, by the reformers. Yep. And you find that in the seven churches. Yep. 
So the same spirit that was at the Tower of Babel. You know, here's interesting. Going into that, I'm going to take a bunny trail if I may. Sure. Matt. <laughs> um, so that the the what are the four things or the three things that the Tower of Babel they wanted to get to heaven, build them the tower. They're going to make a tower. You know, find a way to heaven by building a tower. They're going to make a name, and they don't want their children to be scattered. They want security for their children. You know, those three things. A lot of your religious churches, almost all sermons are preached around those three. Oh yeah, <laughs> either their name or yeah. we have the way to heaven. Yep. You know the system, the structure, the monument, yep. preaching right. the tower, right. or you know, let's make sure that we have a secure way that our children will not go astray. And I look at that and I say, oh my goodness. And then I read Revelation where it says that this same spirit that was in Babel came down through and came into the Roman church, Revelation 17. And that's a whole nother discussion. Yep. And I say, well, I guess that's why they're still preaching it today. Spirit is saying the same thing. The, well, the um, I, what you uh, said, these awful things we call well, institution, we call church. 100% true. Well, Babylon, Babylon in, in the Babylonian language means gate of the gods. Wow. So, you know, it's this idea to create an institutional connection to God, right? That's yep. really what it is. It's a mechanized connection. God had his own idea on how to do that, but it certainly wasn't about building a tower anyway. Yep. Yep. All right. So we got Daniel 8. We got Daniel 9. Uh, should we jump into Daniel 10? Yeah. Daniel 10 is pretty short. Uh, unless you're going to want to spend a lot of time and basically he has this major lament that's going on. And really the biggest thing that's going on in Daniel 10 is this whole prince of Persia and prince of Greece that, that's referring to the supernatural realm, as I understand it. So the watchers, the whole watcher issue, uh, which goes back to Deuteronomy 32, which is when it's actually a Babel <laughs> where God disinherits the nations. And then you have these princes that are given responsibility over the nations. Ultimately, the princes, many of them do not do well in their position and uh, seek their constituents to worship them, etc. And that's where we get this whole worldview of, of the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. So, And then it's Gabriel who has to somehow find a way to get to Daniel with the message that comes in Daniel 11. And Daniel, poor Daniel's waiting for almost 30 days for God to send an answer. And it like doesn't come and it doesn't come and it doesn't come. And, and when it finally comes, Gabriel's like, look, I left on day one. Mm -hmm. I left mm -hmm. on day one, but I couldn't get through until Michael actually had to come and help me. And Michael, in this context, is the prince of Israel, which mm -hmm. means he is the watcher of Israel. Mm -hmm. and And he is... We're, we're, I believe we're going to see him in like chapter 12 um, when the prince of the people stands up. I think it's referring to Michael. So Michael, his supernatural protection on Israel, uh, as I understand it, even though God, there's thing, bad things that happen to Israel, he still is the person that keeps them from get, being annihilated. Because I think if, if Satan would have his way, okay, the Jews would be gone. Yeah. Because they're the key... To the close of the age. Yep. It's not the church, not the Gentiles. Amen. We're not the key. You know, Amen. we're not bringing about the end of the age. The end of the age comes with the Jews because it began with them. And we're told in Romans 11, he said, the Jewish people, according to the gospel, they're enemies. 
but because of the father, they are beloved. The father is speaking about God's Abra mm -hmm. uh, God's covenant with Abraham. Isaac, and yep. Because of the fathers, they are beloved. Yep. And not only that, it says that the gospel of the kingdom or of Jesus is to the Jew first. It's a Jewish yeah. message and it was for the Jewish people and it is for the Jewish people. And there's Amen. always been Jewish believers, always. Amen. And even though Paul was a apostle called to the Gentiles, when he went to the city, the first place he went to was to the Jewish synagogue. Mm -hmm. And he called it the Jewish synagogue. Many times the Gentiles would come and say, hey, we want to hear this also. Right. And then he'd speak to them. And Paul says to the Jew first. 100%. Not only that, this is kind of getting rabbit trails, but not only that, he pays for several to have a Nazarite vow taken, which is extremely expensive. And he does it on the, on the request of those who want the Jewish world to see that he is still Jewish, that he's still practicing Judaism, which is Torah obedience, etc. And so, you know, that to us Gentiles, we, we always look at Paul as this guy who's liberated us from the law. And, and, and we kind of use that as excuse. I, it's a different discussion. But in a nutshell, I'll say this, as Gentiles, we were not part of those covenants. I've never understood, I shouldn't say never, but I don't understand why that argument comes up amongst Gentile people. Because from Acts 15 on, the standard was for, for Ju Gentiles not to convert to Judaism or not to become circumcised and to follow the Torah, etc. That was for the Jewish people. They kept doing it. But for the Gentiles, it was never a thing. And I think that's actually important in prophecy because what happens is if you don't recognize that distinction, mm -hmm. what happens is we then put ourselves in as spiritual Israel. And now all the prophecies have to do with us, not them. And if you don't understand that the prophecies have very little to do with us, even though we might be persecuted, it has everything to do with them. So the mm -hmm. salvation of Israel, like Paul says in Romans 11, is life from the dead for us. Right. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. Jesus coming back is the is the resurrection of us, mm -hmm. according to scripture. I would say if they're being broken off is our salvation. What shall their natural branches being restored? But life from the dead, speaking about the millennial kingdom and the, yeah, creation. and the resurrection of our bodies. Yep. Yep. Amen. Yep. Amen. Yep. Anyway, there's a little little hermeneutic lesson. <laughs> do you have any, do you have any comments on 10? Um, the only comment I want to bring out, and that is verse 11. Here it is again. This messenger comes to Daniel. He says, Oh, Daniel, thou man greatly beloved. Wow. Understand the words that I speak unto you. That's in verse Daniel, thou greatly beloved. God loves those who take an interest in the prophetic word and take an interest in what God's plan is for the future. Let's can you pull up verse 19. Same thing. He says again, when the messenger comes to him, he touches him. He says, verse 19 there again. And he said, Oh man, greatly beloved, fear not peace be to you. Be strong. Yes, be strong. So when uh, he spoke to me, I was strengthened. And said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Just two more times here. And that, that's three, four times here in, in uh, Daniel. You have uh, a messenger coming to Daniel saying, you are beloved of God. And it's because Daniel, he wanted to understand God's heart. That to me is exciting. Yeah. 
Amen. That just blesses me. Amen. Okay, chapter 11. Um, 11 can be pretty extensive. What I'm going to do just to, to lay it out and then we can hear your context is I'm going to open up a scenario that we had uh, worked through. Uh, I think I had shown you privately. Oh, just give me a second here. And this is basically the geographic scenario as described by Daniel. And then we can go back through the text if you want to. So this is a study that we had done, several of us from church. And one of the things I'd learned from an individual named Stephen Lancaster, who is a who was a who was a professor over in uh, JUC, Jerusalem University College, was to always lay out, um, always draw the Bible when it talks about directions, etc., on a map so that you can get a sense of geography, etc. Now, I'm not saying I know exactly where the king of the north is coming from. I'm not saying I know exactly where the king of the south is, even though king of the south, it does say Egypt, so we're probably referring to him. But Daniel 11, 5 through 8, we're basically looking at the first king of the south attacking the first king of the north, and he takes the spoil to Egypt. That's kind of what comes out of that conflict. Uh, the son of son of there's the first act sorry i got ahead of myself the first thing that happens after um after this is that there's an alliance okay that is formed after that conflict and the son of the daughter defeats the king of the north battle one okay so the first thing is this alliance and then they break the alliance and they take the spoil to egypt sorry i got backwards there then the son of the north of that alliance fight goes down and fights the king of the south and the south has a dramatic loss according to verse 11 second battle of the south fights back and there's a second conflict so you're going to see a lot of just different miscellaneous warfare second king of the north again raises another army this is verse 13 there's many that join that army verses 4 or verse 14 and in fifth and 14 you see even violent men of israel joining uh, but somehow don't actually meet up with him, uh, which kind of confirms a vision. I mean, this is kind of weird language, but this is very visual. I think it'll help for for our, for people that haven't really worked through this. But verse uh, verse 15, there's a defining battle of a fortified city that in, requires siege works. But the conclusion is a, again an agreement and a malicious marriage that is is that they conceive that they will somehow gain an advantage, but at the end it doesn't necessarily work as planned. That's verse 17. And then in 18, um, there's, there's a coastal conquest that takes place by the second king of the north as he's in the south. And basically he goes out and does that. There's a coup of sorts at home. This is basically problems at home with a general cause him to turn back. This is just the synopsis of 18 and 19. And the second king north of the north, on his way back, perishes and ultimately then is replaced by a third ruler who shortly after becoming the ruler dies after some kind of a tax law or a levy law of some sort, verses 20. After him, we see this is where the whole democracy angle could come into play. Uh, that we have talked about. It's the fourth king, all right, in verses 21. He is, I call him a politician because he's just a, uh, he's, he's a political type individual. 
as I would read that scripture. He's not a royal. Okay, he's not in the line. And he yeah, comes to power. Yeah, for flatteries. And to me, that just sounds like a politician. But, <laughs> yep. but he, then in uh, verse 22, armies are swept away in front of him like he's a tremendous military, brilliant military leader. And he is the leader of the agreement slash covenant. Okay. Uh, verse 22. Verse 23, he forms an alliance. Verse 23, he raises a small army. And in verse 24, he takes the best part of the region for plunder and by doing what his fathers couldn't. So somehow in his political motivations, his family has tried to do something, I guess, over the years. And somehow he comes and does something that his family has tried to do. You could look at that as the already not yet thing. So it could be that he is a descendant of... Um, <laughs> the ancient kings of whatever somehow and you know you could make that argument anyway we'll keep moving here uh, verse 25 um, the king of the south fights uh, uh, tries to gain independence again but he loses because of his own people's plots so he's unfortunately he's betrayed and he's he's uh, the, the, the king of the north is a pretty nasty guy and he, it says here he raises another army and after the conflict, verse 27, uh, there's peace talks where both lie to each other. But it doesn't even make a difference because the end's going to come regardless of what they say. Mm-hmm. And then 28, he returns home. Um, and at that point, we have this curious kind of against holy covenant language. Mm-hmm. So whatever covenant is made some people tie that to daniel 9's midweek covenant or the or beginning covenant beginning of the seven year covenant of peace but at the end this guy is not necessarily happy with the agreement in verse 28 okay 29 he goes to attack the king of the south again but there's ships that attack and demoralize his effort verse 30 and because of the interference he actually decides to go and take the temple and to defy the holy covenant Okay, which is verse 30 and 31. So another conflict. And then at that moment, after that, that he takes the temple, he stops the offerings and sets up the abomination. And that's verse 31. Okay, so you see this series of events. Now things get interesting. After he stops that abomination, he gets quite busy. The first thing he does is he seduces Jewish people. This is just my synopsis. Jewish people with smooth words, and he notices those who don't like the Holy Covenant because he wants to use those, okay? The second thing that we notice is verse 32 is the people who know their God stand their ground, okay? So there's some people that are just not going for it. They're not going to bend to what this guy is selling, all right? Verse 33 uh, seems to be an underground resistance, but the resistance is through teaching. There are people going around trying to instruct people in the truth, okay, which kind of correlates to what we see happening in the witnesses. The witnesses and others are interfering with his plans by preaching the good news, by preaching the gospel. And we read in 33 that faithful people are killed, burned, and pillaged. Uh, And then we read in 35 that this persecution ultimately causes the purification of the wise. So those who understand what's going on, this, this is a pure, has a purifying effect for them. Uh, I would say purifying or clarifying. Uh, when we understand what Jesus says in Matthew 23, 
you know, that he will not return until they say, which is talking about the Jewish people, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Mm-hmm. After that, in uh, verses 36, he will be in power until the wrath. Okay, so he is the final king. He'll be in power ultimately. He, he will have free reign to do as he pleases. Okay, he'll be unchallenged in the region, in other words. Uh, instead of any other god, he will honor a god of fortresses, which we don't exactly know what it means, but it probably has to do with, with himself, um, etc. He gains a religious ally and attacks fortresses in verse 39. So somebody is attaching to him. Could be who knows. This, this final, the final king is he of the south or the north? It does not necessarily say, does it? Uh, from the north, because he's he comes to power via intrigue. Gotcha. So, okay. Yep. yep. The fifth act is makes people who fall for him, uh, or you know, people who align themselves with him, rulers, and sells land for a price, according to thirty-nine. So he's 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 um, obviously paying off people who like him. And then the king of the south, who interestingly enough didn't disappear here, attacks him. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's not like the king of the south just disappeared. He's still around, and he obviously gains enough muster to come and attack him again. And the king of the north attacks back with really mighty weapons, and that really angers him to seemingly to a degree. And what you read in verse forty is that the king of the north moves quickly through countries and with a massive force. So this is just a a catalyst for even more expansion into the region. And according to verse 40, he attacks south and takes Egypt, which is where the king of the south comes from. He also takes Libya and Cush join, or or Libya and Cush join him after he takes Egypt. So kind of surrounding countries there also join him. And it says in verse 43 that he takes the treasures of Egypt, with him now, that's interesting because Egypt has does have billions and billions of dollars worth of treasure, so it would be worth taking that treasure. Um, and then in verse forty-four, we read about the news from the east and the north caused him to rage, and and that I think has to do with the Euphrates drying up and the kings of the east coming to make war with him, and so we read about that in Matthew twenty-four about the the rumors of wars the wars and the wars part of i think what jesus is describing is the sequence that we just talked about here the rumors of wars is this this idea this news from the east when these other kings are rolling in to to confront him and verse 44 then also says that he sets up a headquarters between jerusalem and the mediterranean okay somewhere on the east of the holy city and the and the sea and then but ultimately, it doesn't matter. He will meet his end with no one to help him. So that's how I would understand that sequence just from a geographical and synopsis phrase. So we could read the whole thing. So, and I think we had talked about this one time in one of our visits, and I found it interesting because I had always looked at this passage. And Matt, hands down, you have a better grip on this than me. And that's why I'm going to, <laughs> this is a discussion. No I'm grips. Like, <laughs> I'm just trying to understand. <laughs> no, but I, 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 what you put together there is absolutely powerful. The first time you showed me that, it was sometime several months ago. And that was just very intriguing to me to go down through what you had just shared there. Because I had always looked at this passage as 
a, a what took place from the time of the four generals and they're 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 fussing and fighting at each other up to um the time that rome basically conquered the known world and and i looked at this whole passage as being fulfilled pretty much and a lot of people do a lot of people do and you would see this as something that is coming yet and this whole scary thing if we're going to take what the other chapters so at chapter eight or seven and eight seem to indicate then i kind of do think this is is part of what Jesus is referring to in Matthew 24 about wars and rumors of wars. In other words, there's a series of wars necessary to cause the setup for the end. In other words, when you see these specific wars or rumors of wars, know that the end is coming. That, that was his warning. Well, how do you know that? Because that could be, well, what about World War One? What about World War Two? What about Vietnam? What about Gulf? What wars are we talking about? Well, there's... So if we're going to be, to me, when I look at this, it looks like a specific set of wars with a specific set of conditions that seems to be alarm bells. It's just like slowly, uh-oh, 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 uh-oh. And then all of a sudden, boom, abomination, right? That happens in Daniel 11. And that's like ding, 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 ding. Like I could see this scenario because the first, the first guy could be old and his son comes to power and he could be quite young and that scenario could last even less than a year if you if you will mm-hmm. until the third guy comes to power who almost immediately is put to death and the fourth guy comes up so you could literally have this sequence happen in a very short period of time but these are the signs that that let us know that we're entering the birth pains mm-hmm. but the sign that we've arrived as i understand 11 is abomination when he takes Jerusalem and stops the daily sacrifice, it's over. Now, there's no question historically that you can look back at the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, the conflicts they had, and find parallels. And some people say, oh, it's so clear that it would have been impossible. Daniel was written after, you know, after this took place. But to me, if, if this was considered to have been fulfilled prophecy, okay, Jesus would have spoken like that mm-hmm. he wouldn't have alluded to the pattern because if you go to matthew 24 you find the same sequence you yes. find you find the talk of antichrists and then you talk hear the talk of war and then you hear the talk of the abomination and then you hear the talk of his return so it's mm-hmm. the same pattern that daniel lays out and daniel's end is the lord coming back so it couldn't have necessarily been referring to um that back there now there is a sorry go ahead well and with that what happens is those that say it's in the past they take verses 33 34 35 and and uh, those that are going to be tried and those that are going to cleave um they're going to be tried that are going to uh uh where is it they're going to make exploits verse 32 um the people that are strong they're going to do exploits they know their god they refer to that as a maccabees I I can I can see that, but to be honest, I always felt like that fits so well with those who are here during the tribulation period. Um, whether it's 144,000 of the two witnesses or even the five foolish virgins going through that are strengthening each other while they're being killed off. 
Yeah, and I look at it like historically speaking, there's many wars that have parallels. Mm-hmm. You know, World War One and World War Two. There's you know there's some parallels. They're not mm-hmm. exactly the same, but there's a lot of the same players involved, right? Yep. So yep. It, when we're talking about ancient conflicts, even more so, uh, all you need is a revival of some of the ancient world's identity, and you could have this come in full swing. Now, if parts of it happened, which we could make that argument that parts of it could be fulfilled, then that could be fulfilled, right? And we would have basically one final conflict to kind of you know, summarize the age. I would be fine with that, but how I kind of see it playing out is that there will be a series of conflicts all right, that probably based on the, what we see here, we're probably talking about some probably Muslim based stuff, right? Because of the whole marriages and things like that. That's a Middle Eastern thing. You're going to have, that's not really a Western way of doing politics, but that is totally an Eastern way of doing politics, which means to, like to me indicates that you're going to have some Middle Eastern stuff going on. Like today you have the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan, for instance, there's a royal family there. Imagine the daughter of the Hashemite kingdom marrying the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, right? Like, oh, there you go. There's a king north-south scenario, right? Or you could have a kingdom in the future, um, Turkey. Maybe it becomes a, um, a, a, what's the word I'm looking for? A monarchy again, instead of a democracy. And you have that, that you know, let's say it's Erdogan. I'm not saying it is, but... Let's say it's Erdogan, his daughter marries, you know, Cece's brother or Cece's nephew or Cece's son or, you know, that's an ancient way of doing things. Okay. So we could very easily in that culture, this could happen again. Now in Western cultures, no, yeah, I just, I don't see it. You know, I don't see it because of democracy. So it, it tells me, I think that This is why I tend to say that Western powers have to diminish, okay? And you're going to see a revival of of, uh, uh, Middle Eastern countries come back as most prominent. I think as Western powers exhaust their resources and exhaust their currencies, etc., the countries that have resources and don't have that is the Middle East. They have oil out of the wazoo. So... and, and with that, if God pulls out the five wise virgins, what is going to happen to Western society? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the backbone of Western society is going to be gone. Yeah. I, so I personally, and I have no problem with the rapture, and I hope it happens because I would love to miss it. I would love to miss <laughs> this difficult time on earth. My personal... Well, I do believe I do believe in a harpazo because the Bible says so, but I do I would place the harpazo just before Jesus return when he's ready to pour out the final wrath. Okay, so I'm a pre-rather. We can have that discussion later. <laughs> but can you explain the harpazo. Go ahead. Being caught up. Being caught. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I do believe we'll be caught up. Okay. There is a harpazo. To be where we are caught up to be with the Lord, I would just see that at the same time that He's returning. Uh, I hope you're right because that would save a lot of. <laughs> I went there. I could lay out real black and white. I mean, I'm sorry, not black and white, but I could I could lay it out what my 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 understanding the scripture wherewith yeah. I see it. But it's it like I people, said, like I said, 
I hope I hope it's true. But as I would understand it, it 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 would I would see it a little bit different. But that's fine. It's not a it's not a point of division. We don't know until it happens. I just hope that if it happens, I'm with it, right? <laughs> I'm wise. I I want to be wise to it. <laughs> so my approach earlier, before I first heard your, and I was never quite 100% solid on it. And then when you first shared this with me, um, I really pulled back from where I had been leaning in the direction I would have went. Um, but back before, and I have a lot to chew, chew on that you shared. I love this. I mean, this here is it, 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 it stretches me. Um, so what I would have said is in verse 35 there, it says, um, to, uh, and some of the, them of understanding shall fall to try them and to purge them and to make them white. And when it says, even to the time of the end, because it is yet for a time appointed, saying 35 kind of spans the Gentile age. And I would have said that this willful king in verse 36 and on is on the other side of the Gentile age coming into the final act of the of Antichrist. That's what my approach would have been. Everything before that was fulfilled in uh, before Jesus and coming into Roman, uh, the Roman world. Um, and then from 36 on, would be uh would be future and i'm just putting that out there so that our listeners can kind of hear you know i i want them to be able to be informed to dig into this and to uh to uh yeah learn just like like i'm learning yeah and i think you know the important thing to note that it's going to be a tumultuous time a, and even amongst the religious world, tumultuous and a, it's going to force people that who've never seen supernatural, <laughs> the non-charismatics of the world. <laughs> no. and, and with that, <laughs> bad when joke. You go, <laughs> when you go in the in the tribulation period, in the middle of the tribulation period, or somewhere in there, there is a battle in heaven. And Michael and his angels fight against the devil and his angels. And Michael prevails and he casts the devil to the earth. And now the devil's confined as a man to walking around on the earth. And we, he is the dragon that's cast down. He is the old serpent, the devil, very clearly defined as like three, four different names there. Um, so what's happening is in the tribulation period, you talk about that veil is going to be thinned. I think I might have said this earlier. The veil between the physical world and the spirit world is going to be thinned out until it is removed. And people literally see with their eyes the day of his wrath when they cry for the rocks and mountains. Yeah. They see him sitting on the throne and they know he's coming in judgment. So uh, that fits right with what you're saying. The non-charismatics at that point. This thing of is there a spirit world or not? Are there demons or not? Is there Holy Spirit or not? Is not going to be an issue because everything is going to be black. Everything is going to be obvious. <laughs> yeah, there's not going to be. Hmm, I don't believe that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't oh. believe water's wet. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, it's about as dumb. <laughs> it is. Okay. It is. I'll it's be. Pretty, I'll it's be pretty. Kind. <laughs> it's just hard to 
it's kind of like miracles when I hear people try to rationalize them. That's the whole point of miracles. They're not rational. Yeah. Like, like the whole point of the Exodus was to do something that's impossible. If God would have done something possible, they wouldn't have written about it. Okay. Yep. Cause it's not really a big deal. People yep. have forded rivers all over the place, right? Like it's not a huge deal. So if it was fording three feet of water, you wouldn't have, you know, wouldn't have made it, would have made it a big deal. But anyway, I don't, so, I don't, I don't have really any more comments on 11 unless you do. Uh, verse 44 tidings out of the East and out of the North shall trouble him. You have, you have the North country. Yep. You have the, the, the Kings of the East coming together. Yep. Uh, 45, it says he shall plant speaking. This is speaking about Antichrist, the King of the North Antichrist. I believe you and I would both agree with that. That's yep. who it is. Yep. And he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas speaking about the dead sea and the mediterranean sea in jerusalem in the glorious holy mountain jerusalem yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him so we do know the last is king of the north is antichrist he is the willful king he is going to be destroyed he is coming to an end because jesus is king of kings and lord of lords amen amen Amen. Now, chapter 12 is a fairly easy, I mean, it's very short, but it's simply that within the context of what we just read, mm -hmm. okay, Daniel 11 and all those wars, etc. That's where we hear at that time, Michael shall stand up. So here's this watcher language coming back. Mm -hmm. And Michael, who is the watcher, shall stand up. Now, some people wonder, what does that mean? Does that mean he's going to avenge? As I understand it, that's when he withholds the protection that he's offering. He stands up, in other words. So the, the protection is lifted off. And that's when, unfortunately, the people that are alive are going to be facing some really tough stuff. Then we read, The prince who stands and watches over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was. So remember, Michael is letting go. And what happens? Satan finally is able to really get at, right? And not only that, as he does that, God is judging the Antichrist, right? So the Antichrist is unleashing all sorts of evil upon the Jewish people. At the same time, God is unleashing all sorts of stuff with him. So it's a really short and really intense period of time. Um, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone, this is the time, this is the reason why the days have to be shortened. This is the, in reference to it. It's not talking about the Christians, right? Oh, that's it's, right? It's talking about the Jewish people. If God would not shorten those days, the Jewish people would be eliminated from being a people. And not only that, but I believe he's even talking about at the end of the tribulation period, you have the sheep and goat judgment. Yeah. Matthew 25. And he's talking about even the earth dwellers. Antichrist is going to go through and destroy anyone that does not take a mark. If I understand those who take a mark, their hope is over. They are done. Yeah, I would, I would understand that. those yeah. that don't take a mark, he's going to kill off. He wants to annihilate everybody that does not take a mark. And so it's, it's specifically talking about the Jewish people, but I believe it's also talking about the rest of the world because God, Jesus is going to uh, tell the, the the sheep nations on his right hand 
come inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The restored Edenic kingdom, the way it was in the Garden of Eden. Um, and if if it wouldn't be shortened, there'd be nobody left to to uh, come into the thousand year reign as earth dwellers. Not yep, we're going to be true. we're going to be reigning over. Correct. There's going to be earth dwellers. Yeah, so. according, that is according to scripture. Yep. The survivors of the nations and the survivors of Israel will dwell yep. in safety and security. And that is in context of the two, I call them species, the resurrected ones and the earth dwellers dwelling together. Uh, that yeah. is part of the evidence for a millennium. So you have the, the earth dwellers and then you have the saints yep. that are raptured. Now we'll discuss that later. Resurrected that come, ones <laughs> that come back with Jesus. Revelation 20, you have thrones set up and those that got the victory over his mark and over his number of his name and did not worship his image. Tribulation saints are brought to those thrones. They are judged righteous and they join the raptured saints that came back with Christ. So now you have that whole package and Together with them, you have the Jewish people who called on their Mosiah, and they're brought into one. So you have those three together reigning with Christ. And Jesus tells the church of Thyatira, the people in that church that overcome are going to rule with me with a rod of iron. They will be given the rod of iron to rule with Jesus. So they have authority. They're given authority over the nations. So you have... The Jewish people, you have the five wise virgins that were raptured. You had the five foolish virgins that were refined in the fire of tribulation. And they are resurrected. And they also reign with Christ, beginning of Revelation 20. And then you have the earth dwellers. They're totally separate. They're earth dwellers. And the Bible says in the Old Testament, prophets speak about the, the people on the earth building the cities, and building the highways and bringing glory of the earth into God's people. And God's Jesus is going to share his glory with his people who reign with him. He says, if you suffer with me, you will be glorified with me. So you have the, the earth dwellers. I'm going to have a big bunny trail here. You have the earth dwellers. And then you have those who are reigning with Christ, the Jews and Gentiles reigning with Christ that are, 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 are sharing Jesus' glory with him. 100%. And those at the end, see, Christ is the first fruit of the resurrection. The first resurrection goes the whole way through to the tribulation saints in Revelation 20. It says this is the end of the first resurrection. Anyways, that's right. a whole other theological discussion. <laughs> well, while we're on that discussion, <laughs> it kind of ties into what we're talking about. So like in Zechariah 2, uh, 10 through 13, sing out and be happy, Zion, my daughter, for look, I have come. All mm -hmm. right. So this is talking about the return. I will settle in your midst, says the Lord. Many nations, this is actually, <laughs> I almost should share this because this is like one of my key verses in this discussion I'm having at an event at our church. And there's people that follow me on YouTube. So I'm stealing the thunder. But many nations, your at church. <laughs> many yeah. nations will join themselves to the Lord on the day of salvation. And they will also be my people. Indeed, I will settle in the midst of you all. Wow. Right. So in that context, 
in that context, then let me show you something else. Like that's one of those verses. That's my key verse because I'm, I'm talking about the harvest, the, um, of the, at the end of the age. And so it's this idea that God is Jew and Gentile bringing him together in his allotment. And we actually have a description, uh, in Zechariah and Ezekiel, what that looks like, right? So this is a, a, a diagram I found alone, but it's true. I mean, it's based on what I have researched and there's better ones out there, but it's a, it's easy to understand. And what it describes is God will set portions horizontally for the, for the 12 tribes. Okay. Cause he's gathering them back. Then he has the prince's portion. And then in the prince's portion, he has the holy portion. The holy portion is, is you have the Levite's portion, the priest's portion, and then you have the city, and it describes uh, the sanctuary and the city. Well, the saints, us, resurrected ones, will be in the city because that's where we go even when we pass, right? So the city is our home. So we're right in the middle of it with the Lord who is in the middle of his people, mm-hmm. right? So we are part of the whole picture, but our place is in the city. But the sanctuary is actually not in the city. The sanctuary is in the middle of all of us. So the city is close to the sanctuary, but it's in the whole, like, it, I mean, I hope people understand this. This is going to be unbelievable. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> did, did you get this graph out of uh, Clarence Larkin? Uh, I just found it online. Okay. Probably. This guy here, Dispensational Truth, Clarence Larkin, books that were from the late, uh, early 1900s, he writes uh, things like this, that you're going to see Israel come back into their land. He was a prophet. This was copyrighted in 1918. Um, I have a number of books that were copyrighted by prophets uh, in the late 1880s, 1890s, early 1900s that talk about, I figured if they have it right and they're saying, look, we know Israel will come back as a nation. And they were saying this 40, uh, 50 60, 70 years before Israel ever did that, um, they were people who understood secrets. And there are some amazing things those guys have to say. Well, they were definitely trailblazers. I mean, it it was a lot of those uh, Zionist Christian types that really made key decisions, including Lord Balfour, for even Israel to become a nation. Like it, it, that played a huge part in this, and it was because of their understanding of prophecy that Israel needed to be a nation that it even came about. So, and Britain, yeah. Anyways, yeah. Anyway, well, we'll wrap this up. So, in twelve, is there anything else? Uh, I look at twelve. Let me just see if there's anything else I'd want to say. I mean, basically, what we describe is at 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 uh, at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book. We just came through the Feast of Tabernacles and the last day of the Feast of Tab or the, the traditional greeting on is it Yom Kippur, which is just before Tabernacles, uh, is may your name be written in the book. Okay, this is this comes in conjunction with the Day of Trumpets, which they don't really know what that is anymore. Yom Torah, it's called um, now today it's just um, Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year, but in the biblical times that was actually in the spring. So it's a little confusing. Sorry, I'm not trying to confuse people. But the, but basically, you know, they, they say this greeting, may your name be written in the book. And we know the book of the book that we're talking about in the New Testament is the book of life. And in that time, okay, everyone who's found written in the book, as many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine. I believe he's referring to this whole age. So you have 
the the righteous at his coming and then ultimately at the end of the kiliasm at the end of the thousand years you have the resurrection of the unjust unrighteous just because of that scenario but anyway uh, but Daniel shut up the words and sealed the book until the time of the end here let me just share the screen that way you can read it sorry um till the time of the end which tells me this whole book right this whole narrative this whole 11 12 scenario is an end time thing right seal up the book till the time of the end many shall run to and fro knowledge shall increase and then i looked and there stood two others on the on the riverbank and the other one and by the way this is an interesting book i read where the guy's like you know what you know how many visions that god gave by rivers oh my <laughs> he was like we need guys just sitting on rivers and seeing if we can get some visions again. So, <laughs> Amen. <laughs> oh, man. Verse 7, Then I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, and then he held his right hand and his left hand to heaven. He swore by him who lives forever that it shall be for a time times half a time. Three and a half. Know, three and a half. Yep. Then the power of the holy people has been completely shattered. All of these things shall be finished. Um, to me, that's interesting. So it's this disarming of the people. Again, the, the focus, the focus here is Israel, and there's a cleansing and a purifying. And Isaiah talks about two thirds perishing, but a third coming through the fire. Zechariah talks about the weeping of you know when Jesus returns, and there's there's definitely it's a tremendous trial for Jacob. We hear of you know those we hear of numbers that are astronomical in comparison to the Holocaust. The Holocaust was maybe a third. This is at least two-thirds of the people. And so it's a tremendous breaking of the people that will lead to repentance. They will repent out of this, and it will bring back the back return of the Lord. So I know some people say that we need to, like, take back the kingdom. We're going to, like, we're going to bring revival in this world, and it's going to bring back the Lord. It, the repentance is not going to be because of what humans do. The repentance is going to be what God does. And all we can do is be light bearers. We can be light bearers. We let our light shine. We proclaim the truth. We proclaim the message of the gospel, the good news of the coming kingdom. That's all we can do. The Lord has to do the rest because this kingdom that is coming is not built by human hands. Mm -hmm. It's not built by human violence. You know, the kingdom, this is a phrase that Jesus used. The kingdom suffers violence. I used to understand, I tried to figure out what does that mean? You know, violent take it by force. Well, for years, the kingdom of God was Israel, right? And it suffered violence. And the violent took it by force or this or that. There's all these wars that will take place. But the kingdom that is coming is not by might or power, but by his spirit. And it will be a kingdom that is unstoppable and unshakable, and it will be established by him. So all we have to do is proclaim the message. That's our, Amen. That's our job. Amen. <laughs> I think uh, on this here, it um, says that verse Actually, two, and many that yeah, sleep okay. in the dust of the air show. I'm sorry. Well, we, need, we, we I want to circle back to verse 11 then, but yeah, go to there. Uh, no, go ahead. You finish out. You finish out. Well, I, all I was going to say is that, you know, the most important part here is he's saying all of this stuff, sealed in time, time, the end, many shall be purified, many white refined, and the wicked will do wickedly, etc. But then he comes back to this very major point, which is exactly where Jesus comes into alignment and says that from the time of the daily sacrifice is taken away, 
and the abomination of desolation is set up. There shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and comes to 1,335. But you go your way till the end, for you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of days. That is the gospel in a nutshell. That's all a prophecy, again, in a nutshell. Amen. And uh, this here, um, wow, there's a lot in here. I think what I'm going to do is just uh, let's look at let's look at seven. Um, so you have that this here, just for people who who are asking about the three and a half. Where do you get that? Um, it shall be for a time, singular, for times, plural, and for a half a time. That's where we get our three and a half years. Yep. Um, and that is one half of the seven weeks, the 70th week of Daniel, one half of the seven years. Um, and he shall have a company to scatter the power of the holy people. So what you what happens is in the last three and a half years, I think it says shattered in your trip uh, in your translation there. The, the power of Israel is absolutely shattered. And they flee out into the wilderness and where they are protected and it is actually there where the kings come together to wipe them out there's no military they fled they left everything behind my understanding there is no power there is only the jewish people and now antichrist comes down to simply just wipe them out and it is at that point when their power is shattered and they have no defense that they say maybe Yes, maybe Jesus was the Messiah. And I'm telling you, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel today, the Israeli people today, they look at the world and they know they can depend on U.S. sometimes, most of the time. They know there's other nations that have come to their defense. But, you know, there's something that has happened that has shifted in the last 40 years. They are realizing that there is one group of people worldwide, it's evangelical Christians, that always stand at their defense and always stand for them. It's the only one. Yep. Here recently, I heard uh, uh, Rabbi Lappin, great guy, and he said this. He said, I'm just a rabbi that loves the Christian people. <laughs> and that is beautiful i love the jewish people and i told him that afterwards he said hey you said that i said i want you to know we love you too here's a beautiful thing there is a seed there is a door being planted within the jewish people today already that is someday going to open for receiving the messiah and they realize the that the evangelical christians are their friends that that matt to me is powerful and to anybody Jewish who is listening to this, I want you to know that we love you and that because of God's covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you are part of that covenant. And Romans 11 would say that the natural branches are cut off, but they're going to be grafted back into that root. So, and to the, to the church, to the, to the Gentile and to the church people, I want to say this, Romans 11 comes in very clear about not being lifted up in pride. It comes out very clear. I mean, he comes, he hits that thing hard. I taught that Romans 11 another Wednesday evening at church. And uh, 
did not realize before I dug into it how hard he hits that thing about being lifted up in pride, about us being humble and um, how, well, he comes back, he comes very clear about God is able to graft them back in. Not only is he able, but he said he will graft them back into their own olive tree. So that's it. That is uh, the end of the story. When we come to the end of the story, you go through life and you hit hard times, you hit tough times. There's one thing you always need to do. Go to the back of the book. How does the story end? And then you keep that perspective because the thing that protects our head is for an helmet, the hope of salvation. Matt, that's what protects your mind and your head. The hope. We have a hope. A glorious hope. There's a lot of people don't understand it. That what that hope is, is the age to come and everything good in it. You know, like, like everything that's wrong here is going to be right there. And yep. this hope, okay, scripturally, this hope is, was the Jewish hope, okay, mm-hmm. or is the Jewish hope. It is still what they're looking for, still what they're longing for. We're looking for with it, you know. I, there was a Jewish person, uh, oh, I'm, there's many. So the question is when the Messiah comes, they need to ask the question, is this your first time or your second time? <laughs> <laughs> yep. You know, I, the church, when he comes back, he's going to have to say, is this the first time you're coming with, for your church or with your church? Because the first time he doesn't come down, he only comes into, we meet him in the air. Yeah. That's what, right. What's going to be a bummer is when, when he comes back, he's coming back as a Jew. And the Christians <laughs> are going to be kind of ticked at that probably. Like, I thought you were some, you know, I thought your last name was Christ. <laughs> oh, which means messiah it, that's, right that's what he it is he is the messiah no <laughs> well, i i look at this whole thing i want to end with the the reading a little section of the didache i don't know if you've ever heard of the didache yeah can can i make one final statement too for our listeners um okay i want here's something that's very very important that we understand we as a christian church are not involved in politics to improve this earth to prepare a kingdom for jesus to come back and set up we are looking as things move forward we're going into a time of deception we're going into a time of trial we're going into a time of fire the gentile people are going to be tried the jewish people even more so so we are going into a time uh today the answer and what we need as a church is to walk in Holy Spirit anointing, having our vessel, our body is a temple of the Holy Ghost, having our vessels full of oil, that anointing, Holy Spirit anointing. And um, we need to prepare ourselves as a five wise, if you, as a five wise virgins, if you have anyone pushing and saying, uh, pushing this idea about getting involved in worldly world government and making this place a better place so that jesus will come and set up his kingdom that is absolute heresy that's my final statement matt i think um there's there's a lot of things that i had learned um even prophecy i avoided for most years because i grew up in an environment where i was afraid to approach it what i heard was the doom and gloom stuff the Mm -hmm. the the very popular 80s 90s doom and gloom version of prophecy which is just like anything you saw was just a sign a sign a sign a sign a sign a sign well when with my whole 
having gone to Israel many times and understanding the culture like better than I used to, it just all of a sudden I recognized, you know, God did not change his mind. Jesus did not come to change um, the narrative. Okay, he is part of the narrative and he actually came to to <laughs> raise awareness to the narrative. Right. So what is the narrative? The narrative is that God wants to restore the world. God wants to restore humanity. God wants to dethrone Satan. God wants to dethrone his the angelic rebels. Okay, he. This is the whole point of this. So God's whole mission is to dethrone death and hell, which is all the bad things that have happened, and reverse it and bring it back back life. Well, this that is a hundred percent Jewish concept, uh, if you will, from scripture, from prophecy. And so when I understood that prophecy is talking about this hope, which is the Jewish hope, the reason that God brought them out and brought Abraham and called Abraham and covenant and David, the whole nine yards, I, re I recognize that this is a continuation of that narrative. Now, there are those who want to believe the narrative and there are those who don't, regardless of bloodline, right? So regardless if you're a Jew or Gentile, there's many Jews I've met who do not believe scripture, mm -hmm. okay? Just being Abraham's descendant does not mean that you believe the message okay just being so-called christian does not mean you believe the message the truth is there are those who know their god and there are those who know the message those are the people that god is going to be working around and i think you allude to that with your comments when you refer to the wise virgins mm -hmm. there there are those who know their god and they know the message they know what's happening. You know, we may not know the exact sequence of things. And I, I don't pretend like I understand all of it as far as the sequence. I have my theories, but that's not the point. The, th the theories, we have we have fun with that because it's just like we're anticipating. It's a way of kind of working out the way things can happen. But it's about the expectation of. We believe as Gentile believers, we believe Jesus, who taught the world to come, which is which is a concept very prevalent in Judaism, because it was prophesied by Isaiah, it was prophesied by you know, many Old Testament prophets, we believe in the world to come. And we believe the initiator of the world to come is Jesus. Jesus is the answer. He is the one who's going to initiate it. So having said all that, I just want to read from this section. So the Didache was written in 98 AD. And there's just a section here that I think is just well, because this is the early church, okay? Early believers, when still back in the days where it was a good mixture of Jew and Gentile, right? Mostly Jews, some Gentiles. In, let me just share this real quick here. Alrighty. In the last days, the false prophets and corruptors shall multiply, and the sheep will be turned into wolves. And love will be turned into hate. As lawlessness increases, they will persecute and betray and betray and hate one another. And then the deceiver of the world will appear as a son of God, performing signs and wonders, and the earth will be delivered into his hands. He will do things more unholy than any since the beginning of the world. All of humanity shall come to the fire of testing, and many will fall and perish. But all who endure in their faith shall be saved from the curse. Then the signs of the truth will appear. Firstly, a rift in the heavens. Then the sound of a trumpet. And thirdly, the resurrection of the dead. But not all will rise, because as it is said, the Lord shall come and all his saints with him. Then the world will see the Lord coming 
upon the clouds of heaven. I think that's a powerful testimony in the first century, right in the time of the, of the apostles, that their hope, their understanding was this, right? You think the prophecy nuts are something new? This was the message. This is what they were teaching. Yep. You know, this is yep. important. We need to understand this. So, yep. And God's attitude towards us to desire to understand. We might be off. We might have funny, goofy ideas. We might see things wrong. But God says, oh, thou man, greatly beloved of God to Daniel. And he says the same thing to those today who are looking at it and are trying to squeeze honey out of the rock and understand it. Amen. Thank you so much. Yep. God bless you. Be blessed. <laughs>